Turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 1. If you want to get a head start on where we'll be going next, you can also open to Matthew chapter 7 if you'd like. We've been teaching um, um, for the last several weeks on the subject of spiritual authority and dominion. I have um, purposely made a, a certain statement each time that we read Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, and I'm going to do it again tonight because I want to make sure that it, it gets pounded in. The Bible talks about wisdom is, uh, is the result of pounding in the truth of the word. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. <clears throat> and God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So I want you to notice two things here. First of all, it says that we were made in his image and after his likeness. One translation says, or literally the meaning of the, one of those words, the, the word likeness, means an exact duplication in kind. The law of Genesis is that everything produces after his kind. Now, we usually misquote that. I have for years. Because it's easy to say that the law of Genesis is that everything produces after its kind. An apple tree will produce apples with apple seeds. That'll produce another apple tree and so forth. Well, that's true, but that's really not what the Bible says. The Bible says God instructed everything, created everything, and made it to, to reproduce after his kind. And God reproduced after his kind as well. Now, one of the most fascinating, thrilling, and undisputable facts of the Bible is in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1 that says clearly that man was created to have dominion in the earth. Now, let me ask you a question. Since the Bible said God never changes, what's man's purpose today? As far as God's concerned, everything's still the same as it was. Now, the circumstances have changed, certainly because man fell in the Garden of Eden. But if God originally wanted man to have dominion in the earth, he still does. Or else he's changed. Or else he's altered his plan. Yet the Bible says that God changes not. So it's still God's plan and purpose for man to have dominion in the earth today. Now, as I said, the, the circumstances have changed a little bit. But let me back up to the image and likeness again for just a moment. We have, I have been guilty of saying that God created man as much like himself as he could possibly make him. But let me ask you a question. What's impossible with God? Is anything impossible? So when God said, let us make man after, his, after our image and after our own likeness, he's literally making God like himself. Now don't get weird on me. I'm not saying that God created man to be ruler of the universe. In fact, the Bible says in Psalms that God takes care of the things in heaven he's given the earth into the hands of men. But God made you an exact duplication of himself. We may not be living up to it. We may not even understand what that means. But when God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness, he made you exactly like himself for the purpose of having dominion on the earth. Now, we've talked some in previous uh, services about the fall, about how Satan deceived Eve. Adam was standing right there, could have done something about it, 
God clearly told them that there was an adversary that they needed to guard and protect the garden against. Dress and keep the garden literally means guard and protect it. And so a man was instructed as to what his responsibility and his job was, and he didn't do it. He didn't guard and protect the garden. He didn't dress it and keep it. And so he lost a portion of his authority. He lost the control of his tongue, literally. When the Bible says that God, was, God commanded man not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Bible says following the fall, God said man has become like us to know good and evil. So out of his mercy, as an act of mercy, God prevented him from getting back to the tree of life to stay in that fallen condition forever, for all eternity. Now, I've got more to say than I've got time to say. So I'm trying to pick and choose stuff. When we consider that man is created an exact copy of God. That doesn't mean you've got all of God's power. But it means you're made just, just like God is. Man lost a position of fellowship with God. He died in the day that he ate of the tree and disobeyed God. And he died spiritually. He didn't die physically for 930 years later, till 930 years later. It took 930 years for death, physical death, to catch up to the life of God that was in Adam. The residue of the life of God that was in Adam. Which was the source of his being and also the source of his authority. Now, when Jesus comes along, Jesus is born of a virgin because it was important for him to satisfy the legal requirements as our Redeemer. Now, look with me over to Matthew chapter 7. I've got to say enough of this for it to all tie together, but I don't want to get bogged down in stuff that takes up time for no purpose or for little purpose. In Matthew chapter 7, I want you to see the last two verses of the chapter, verses 28 and 29. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. The word doctrine means teaching. The people were astonished at his doctrine. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, if you're reading from the King James, the word one is in italics, which means the translators added it. It's not in the original text. It literally reads, for he taught them as having authority. He taught them as having authority. Now, this phrase, as having, literally means, look it up for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Look it up for yourself in the strongest concordance. It literally means, these two words literally means how to hold. So let's insert those definitions, the literal meanings of the Greek words, and see what it's trying to tell us. When Jesus ended these things, the people were astonished at his teaching, not at him, at his teaching. For he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Now, I want you to back up a few verses and see what he's been teaching. The section that, it, that is just prior to this, it starts in chapter 5 with the Beatitudes and so forth. But notice Jesus begins in verse 
or really concludes his, uh, his uh, sermon on the mount with verse 24, Matthew seven twenty-four. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. I want you to notice he says, therefore. In other words, he's saying, this is the principle that ties together all the things I've been telling you. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which has built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, same rain, and the floods came, same floods, and the winds blew, same winds, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings. The people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. What teaching did Jesus do that was identified as doctrine for how to hold authority? He's talking about being a doer of the word. He's talking about being a doer of the word. Turn with me over to John chapter 10. Now here's where I run into trouble because John chapter 10 makes the most sense when you realize that it was tied to chapter 9. John chapter 9 tells us that Jesus came along with his disciples beginning in verse 1 and saw a man that was born blind. And the disciples asked him a question about it. And the question they asked is, Master, who has sinned to cause this man to be born blind? Was it him or his parents? Now, the disciples knew more than the church does, modern-day church does, because they recognized that sickness was the result of sin. Notice they did not say, is it the will of God for this man to be born blind? Now, that's immediately where the modern-day church goes. Modern-day church says, well, I wonder what purpose God has in this blindness. I wonder what happened here that God allowed this to happen. The disciples knew better than that. They recognized that the cause of the blindness, just like the cause of any sickness and disease, any calamity and any destructive force, is sin. Their only question is, whose sin did it? Was it the individual sin? Well, if it was the individual sin, he must have sinned in the womb because he was born blind. That wouldn't make sense. Well, then most people would assume that maybe it was the parents. And Jesus said it wasn't either one. Neither is this man's sin nor his parents. And then he talks about what he's going to do about the situation. He doesn't say sin is not the problem. He just says it's not the individual sin or the sin of the family. Well, then whose sin caused it? Adam's sin caused it. Adam's sin opened the door to sickness and disease in the earth. So Jesus says, neither is this man's sin nor his parents, but that the work of God must be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. There's a time coming where I won't be able to work, he said. Now this, when I was uh, growing up in church in Sunday school, this uh, passage of scripture was taught to me that Jesus said, neither is this man's sin nor his parents, but God made him blind so that I'd have somebody to heal. Well, the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. So if God wants one man blind, we would have to conclude, if the Bible is true, that he would want every man to be blind. 
for God to want one thing for one of his children or one person on the earth and something better for somebody else on the earth would make him a respecter of persons. But the Bible says he's not. So if that were the case, then we have a dilemma. We've at least found part of the Bible that's not true. Well, that's impossible if it's the word of God, and it is. So instead of trying to change the meaning of the Bible, why don't we change our doctrine, our thinking, to line up with what the Bible says? If you want to know the works of God in this situation, just see what Jesus did. He didn't say blindness is the works of God. He said, what I'm about to do are the works of God. Well, what did he do? He spit on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and told him to go wash off in the pool of Siloam, and he came again seeing. See, the works of God were healing, not blindness. Now, the reason that this story is important and why it ties into John chapter 10 is because this guy has to defend Jesus to the Pharisees. This guy was well-known. Everybody knew that he'd been blind from his birth. So his healing created quite a stir. So the Pharisees want him to, to tell the story. How did you come again seeing? How was it that you regained your sight? And he said, well, some guy came, spit on the ground, made a little mud pack, put it on my eyes, so I'm going to go wash it off in the pool of Siloam, and I did, and now I can see. And they started trying to say certain things about him. First of all, the Pharisees said, well, this isn't even the blind guy. This is just somebody that looks like the blind guy. This is not a real healing. And then others started to say that Jesus was working by the power of the devil and he wasn't really from God and so forth. This fella, leaving the question to his parents, is this your son? Is this really your son or is it just a, somebody that looks like him? Well, this guy wound up having to defend himself against the religious leaders, which is a real dangerous position to be in. They had the power to, to cause you physical harm. So he has to defend himself. And Jesus, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you back up to the last couple of verses of chapter 9, and I'll see if I can tie this thing together quicker than I intended to. He defends Jesus when the Pharisees, religious leaders, say that Jesus had to be uh, someone not of God. He says, well, this is a marvelous thing. You say that he's not from God, and yet whoever heard of somebody making a blind man, a person born blind, to have his sight? So he's having to stand up and defend Jesus because of what's happened to him. The courage of this guy is outstanding. And John's the only one that tells us this story. The last of the gospel writers, many years after the other gospels are written, John fills in the blanks with some of these things. And, and this story particularly is, is of great significance in my opinion. So Jesus comes to him, finds him, verse 35, John chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when they had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. He points out his the healing that he received. You can see now, you've already seen him. It's me that's talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment, I am come into this world that they which see not might see and that they which see might be made blind. 
Now, that didn't sit well with the Pharisees that was, who were sitting by. Some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? And Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should not have sin, or you should have no sin. In other words, you wouldn't be held accountable or responsible for your sin if you really were blind. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remaineth. Now, chapter 10, verse 1, is the continuation of him talking to the Pharisees. It's the continuation of what Jesus is going to say that's relative to the authority, the subject of authority that we're talking about. Notice he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, chapter 10, verse 1, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and shall find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Let me stop here and define some terms for you. The sheepfold, the Bible says in Psalms that we are the sheep of his pasture. That means the sheepfold has to be the earth. Jesus says, I am the door. What is he saying? He's saying everybody that came in other than in some way other than the door is a thief and a robber. Well, we know the thief he's talking about is the devil. Verse 10 identifies that. The thief cometh not before to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus is identifying his legal right to exercise authority and judgment on the earth. He's saying very simply this. I am the door. I came in legally. He's talking about the virgin birth. He's saying every person that is born of a woman has authority here on the earth. Now, he talks about the purpose of coming into the door. See, folks, this is why the virgin birth is such an important issue. You remember in 1 John, uh, John writes to the church and he says, anyone that that, uh, denies that Jesus came into the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. Why is that? Because being born of a woman is everything when it comes to redemption. Because if Jesus had not been born of a woman into the earth not man he didn't have an earthly father he had a heavenly father that united with mary and jesus was conceived in the womb but because he was born of a woman it gave him a legal right to operate here in the earth when satan came to adam and eve in the garden of eden he had to assume a created body he didn't have one of his own and jesus is telling us very specifically 
Now, this may seem elementary. When I say this, you may say, well, yeah, okay, we knew that already. But do we really know it? There's a difference between hearing it or having heard it and it really having the impact on us that I think it's supposed to. No one other than those that are born of a woman have any authority here on the earth whatsoever. Which means Satan has no authority on the earth. Now Satan gained power when when, uh, he deceived Eve and Adam followed her into sin. He received power. Well, what power was that? Hold your finger here. We're going to come back to these verses, I think. But turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 2, I believe it is. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's read verses uh, 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Now the previous verses talk about uh, mankind and uh, Jesus coming to make salvation perfected for us. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Notice he's talking about human birth. Being born of a woman. He also himself likewise took part of the same. Why does the Bible keep mentioning that? Because it was the legal foundation for him, the exercise of his authority. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same flesh and blood that through death, talking about his death on the cross, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8 that for this purpose was the Son of God manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now we could stop and make a list of the works of the devil. Sickness, poverty, depression, bondage, so forth. We could make a list of all the things that we can think of that are part of the devil's works. But really there's one category that's defined as the works of the devil. And that's very simply that Jesus came to strip the devil of the power of death. You remember in Matthew chapter 28 when in verse 18 when he's uh, resurrected from the dead Jesus appears to his disciple and says all hail all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Well what authority was given unto him since he went to the cross that he didn't have while he was here on the earth in his earthly ministry. What additional authority did he gain? He had to have something more than when he went to the cross or else he wouldn't tell the disciples All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He then delegated the authority to mankind in the earth. He said, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, he's saying, I'll take care of the authority in heaven. You take care of the part that deals with earth. Why? Because man was created to have a dominion and authority here on the earth. Jesus came to restore man to to God's original plan to rule and and. to have dominion here on the earth. Well, what power did he gain? Well, he said himself that he gained, he had the keys of hell and death. That's the power of death that Hebrews 2.14 talked about. So what power does the devil have now? Well, he doesn't have the power of hell and death. What power did he gain through the fall of man? The power of hell and death. So what does he have now? 
Bible says Jesus paralyzed him. Bible says that the devil has been stripped of all of his authority, all of his power. And that now he's powerless. The Bible says that your your adversary walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, if he had power in any form whatsoever, why wouldn't he just decide who he's going to eat up? Because he doesn't have authority. He doesn't have the power of death anymore. Well, what is the power of death? Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So what's happened? Jesus, through his sacrifice, death, burial, and resurrection, has restored man to his original place of authority. The only difference between us now and and when Adam was in the Garden of Eden is that we have the experience of sin in our flesh. We have the knowledge of good and evil which Adam gained only through the fall. But we have the authority and the legal right because we're born of woman. We came in through the door. We have the right to exercise authority here on the earth through the words of our mouth. The Bible, if you look it up, count the times, in the four Gospels, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man 60 times. Five times he identifies himself as the son of God. And three of those fives are in one instance, in one setting, during the same event. Now, why would that be? Why would Jesus identify himself as the son of man so much more frequently than the son of God? Because he's establishing his legal right to exercise authority in the earth. He's exercising, he's emphasizing his legal right to exercise authority in the earth. Now back to John chapter 10. A couple other verses I want you to see here. We read down through verse uh, 10, I believe it is. He goes on in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and fleeth, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Talking about the Gentiles. Them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. Now notice he's talking about the authority concerning his own life. Therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Now, Jesus is saying that his authority goes so far as to preserve his life. 
Now, the Bible tells us of several different instances, one of them being in Luke chapter 4. Mark chapter 6 is the same account of Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. He stands up in the synagogue and takes the scroll where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closes the, the book, hands it back to the ruler of the synagogue, and everybody's watching him, see what he's going to say. They've already heard about him. He's been to Capernaum and he's performed miracles and signs and wonders and healed the sick there and so forth. It's identified in the scripture that they had known about these things. And Jesus says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, he's saying very simply, very plainly for them to understand. He's saying these scriptures that everybody knows is talking about the Messiah is talking about me. And then he goes so far as to say, now I know what you're thinking. You would say to, you, to me, physician, heal thyself. The same miracles that we've seen, that we've heard done in Capernaum, do those here too. But the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 6 that he could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say he wouldn't, says that he couldn't. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He didn't have any healing miracles in Nazareth because they wouldn't believe, not because he wasn't anointed. He's just preached to them that he's anointed. He's just told them, I've got the power delegated to me by God himself through the Holy Ghost to heal the sick and to perform healing miracles. But he couldn't do anything in Nazareth because of their unbelief. And he marveled because they wouldn't believe. Now, at this point in time, the Bible says that they took him. He speaks against them, says that a prophet's not without honor, save in his own hometown and so forth. And they get upset. They get upset because he won't perform for them. He won't put on the show that they want him to put on. And so they conclude that he's not the Messiah. He's, in fact, they even say, we know this guy. We know his brothers and sisters. They grew up here. He can't be the Messiah. And it says they took him to the brow of a hill and would cast him down headlong off the cliff to kill him. But the Bible says Jesus just escaped out of their hand. Now, how did he do that? He did the same thing in the middle of the synagogue or in the middle of the the temple in Jerusalem on one occasion. He did it a couple other times as well. But how did Jesus escape out of their hands? I mean, these people are used to killing folks. They're used to taking people captive. They're used to stoning them until they're dead. How did Jesus escape out of their hand? Well, he just said right there that no man has the power to take his life. So I want you to see that because he came in through the door of being born born as a woman, born, excuse me, that was a wrong statement, (laughs) born of a woman. What a mistake to make in this day and time. Dear Lord. Because Jesus was born of a woman, because he was the son of man. It was the foundation for the exercise of his authority. And Jesus is saying that my authority goes so far as to preserve my life, even when people try to kill me. Now, that authority was challenged. Turn with me over to, um, uh, where is it? Let me see if I've got it written down here. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. You remember that, uh, that Jesus said in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus came to him 
He came to him by night because he was afraid of the other religious leaders. He's part of the Pharisees. But he was afraid of them and what they would do if they found out that he was at least leaning toward being a believer. He said, Jesus, we know that you've got to be from God because nobody can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. And Jesus said, you must be born again. He didn't understand. He thought he was talking about being born again physically, naturally. And Jesus explained, he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He goes so far as to say this in the next verse. This is John chapter 3 and verse 6, I believe it is. Verse 5, verse 6, somewhere around there. He said, except a man be born of water, natural birth, born of a woman, and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying there is a legal entry manner or method to be a part of the kingdom of God. You've got to be born of a woman, which gives you a legal right as a human being made in the image of God. And then you've got to go through the other door, which is the new birth, which is what Jesus came to lead us out of darkness into light. It's what he's talking about following them through the door, calling us out and following him into salvation in John chapter 10. So he talks about the same two doors in John chapter 10 as he talks about in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. Except a man be born of water, meaning born of a woman, natural birth, and born of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now this is where it was challenged. In Matthew chapter 8, it tells us about... uh, Well, it tells us several things previously in the chapter about Jesus exercising authority. Beginning in verse 23, it talks about Jesus calming the storm. But verse 28 is what I want you to see. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus, or Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Now, what's that about? Here are two demon-possessed guys, and the demon possession is so complete, it's so fierce, that apparently they're attacking anybody that come down that part of the road. It would be well known, and everybody would try to stay away from that place and, and so forth. But it's, it's certainly something that's been noised abroad, abroad. Everybody knows about it. So Jesus comes to that place. And instead of them getting in Jesus' face and trying to bully them like he would, they would do other people, the evil spirits that are controlling these men cry out and ask a question that's really kind of peculiar unless you understand how things work. They said, who art thou, son of God? Notice they don't talk about him being the son of man. Because the demons have no understanding. At least they didn't at that point. I'm not sure what they know now. But clearly they had no understanding of the legal right to exercise authority being, having been the, the, being the condition of being born of a woman. So they consider Jesus as the son of God who's operating in the earth without a legal foundation before the time... They know there's a time coming when Satan's lease runs out here on the earth and they're thrown in the bottomless pit. So their question is, since it's not time yet, what are you doing here? 
are you here to torment us before the time that we'll be tormented throughout eternity? Can you see that? What are they doing? They're challenging his authority. Because Jesus' authority was not because he was the son of God. His authority was because he was the son of man. Now, folks, there's a difference between ability and authority. There's a difference. Just like Jesus was talking about the devil, the thief cometh not but for to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil has some power here on the earth in this respect. If, the, if a thief or a robber is robbing the First National Bank, he's got power as long as he's holding the gun on the people that have the money. But what do we do? He doesn't have any authority. He has no authority to take the money that he's about to steal. That's what Satan did with man's authority to rob man and put him in a condition of spiritual death. So what do we do in the case of a bank robbery? We call people that have bigger guns. Those are also known as the authorities. And the authorities with greater power put an end to the bank robbery. That's exactly what Jesus did when he came to the earth. And remember, everybody was baffled by Jesus' ability to do the signs and wonders and miracles that he did. Turn with me now over to, some, uh, to uh, Mark chapter 11. Here's another place where his authority was challenged. Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem. This is after he's cursed the fig tree and all that took place. They came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and said unto him, by what authority doest thou these things? They want to know, by what authority? Where'd you get the authority to do this stuff? There's no question he's doing it. No question whatsoever that the power is being demonstrated. And resulting miracles and healings are taking place. But they want to know by whose authority or what authority doest thou these things. And who gave you the authority to do these things? What authority do you have and who gave it to you? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will also ask of you one question and answer me. And I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. In other words, you answer my question and I'll answer yours. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves saying, if we shall say from heaven, he'll say, why then didn't you believe on him? But if we say of men, they feared the people for the all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto Jesus, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering said unto them, neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now let me ask you a question. Does Jesus not want them to know the source of his authority? I would submit to you he does. He does want them to know. Because he tells a parable that explains where the authority came from. But let's go back to the question. If if their question or his question is critical to him answering their question, then let's try to answer the one that Jesus asked. The baptism of John. What was that baptism? 
Well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, the Bible says. Does a baptism of repentance come from heaven or come from man? Let me ask you another question. Maybe it'll be easier to see it this way. The baptism of the Holy Ghost, is that of man or is that of God? Is it from heaven or is it from man? Well, that's from heaven. It's something that comes down that man doesn't have access to. But the baptism of repentance doesn't come from heaven. That's man making a choice to turn about, make a turn in his ways, his actions, and his behavior. So the baptism of John, was it from men or was it from heaven? It was from men. Well, then why did John, was John counted as a prophet among the people? Because he was anointed of God to call people to repentance. So the answer to Jesus' question is very simply this. The baptism of John and the work that John did is exactly the same source of authority that Jesus had here on the earth. He was a man anointed of God. And that's what Jesus preached. He preached it in Luke chapter 4. He preached it every time that he went to a new place. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and so forth. To give good news to people that are poor, the good news for poor people is you don't have to be poor anymore. The good news for sick people is you don't have to be sick anymore. Good news for people that need to be delivered is that they can be delivered. So Jesus is saying, and this is the reason why he identified himself as the son of man 60 times in the four gospels. He's saying, I'm a man. The Bible says in Philippians 2, 7, that Jesus set aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth to do the will of God. Jesus did not come to the earth as the son of God. He was the son of God, but he laid aside all of his heavenly power and glory to come to the earth and be like a man. Why? Because unless he comes in legally to be born of a woman, which God can't do, he has to become a man. He has to set aside his deity, or not his deity, but his divine power to become like a man. And then at age 30, the man Jesus was anointed by the Holy Ghost when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Do you remember the story of uh, Jesus turning the water into wine? There's a lot about that story that I think we miss. The Bible says, and I'm just going to summarize it. It's in John chapter 2, I believe, if you want to look it up. But the Bible says that Mary came to Jesus and said, we're out of wine. We We need you to do something about this. She's speaking for herself. Nobody else is involved. She just says, I need you to do something about this. And Jesus questions it and says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Now, it's it's almost like he's upset about it. And there's only one possibility for why he would be upset. And that is if she has the idea that she's the one that's directing what he does rather than him being led of God. That's the only thing that I can suppose. If it's something else, then... You'll have to school me on that because I can't figure it out. But then she says something to the servants that's very, very, very instructive. She says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Why would his mother say that? That Jesus has been baptized of John just previously in the Jordan River. 
But he's never done a miracle before. The Bible says the water turning into wine was the first miracle he did. So he's never displayed miracle working power ever before up to that point. So why would she tell the servants whatever he tells you to do, do? Well, folks, you need to realize something. And that is when Jesus was and is identified as the sinless, spotless sacrifice, that means he never sinned throughout his life. That means Jesus has never transgressed the law of Moses or any part of the word of God prior to him being anointed of the Holy Ghost. Here's what I want you to get out of that. It was not the power of the Holy Ghost that kept him from from sin. It was his nature. The fact that he was made in the image and likeness of God. Now what does that mean when we say that Jesus didn't sin? Well, James chapter 3 says... That if you're able to control your tongue, you can control your whole body. So that means that Jesus never transgressed. He never sinned. He never made a mistake. He never spoke anything contrary to the word of God. Now, what what does the Bible say as a part of the Abrahamic covenant that would be the result of somebody that only speaks according to God's word? The law of Moses which is all they had up until that point in time. Well, it says the blessings of God will overtake them, doesn't it? Isn't that what God said? Through Moses to the children of Israel, keep diligently and obey diligently the word of God, and all these blessings shall come on you and overtake you. But if you transgress the word of God, all these curses will come upon you. Jesus has lived a charmed life. Because he's never transgressed against the word. The devil has never been able, even before he was anointed of the Holy Ghost and baptized by John in the Jordan River, the devil has never been able to make Jesus say something against God's word. And as a result, all the blessings of Abraham were on this, on this young man. So his mother identifies that she sees and knows something different about this guy. When she says to the, to the servants... Whatever he tells you to do, do it. She knows that his words come to pass. She knows that whatever direction he gives, because he never speaks against God's word. See, we have the idea that that Jesus began saying it is written in Mark chapter 4 when he was uh, tempted of the devil after being in the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus has lived his life saying it is written. He didn't just start that when the devil tempted him. He's lived his life saying it is written. He's lived his life saying and confessing and believing and acting on what the Bible says. The old covenant, law of Moses. So when his mother says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, be quick about doing it. She knows. She's lived for 30 years and watched nothing but blessings come from this man. He doesn't know good and evil. He only knows good. Are you out there? So when Jesus asked the question, the baptism of John, whose was it? Was it of man or was it of God? Well, a little bit of both. It was man's baptism, but he was anointed of God to do it which is exactly what Jesus said about himself. 
exactly what he said about himself. We've got, well, I'll speak for myself. Because of my experience with sin and the emotions that it stirs in me, the hatred that it stirs in me, the disappointment that it stirs in me when I fail God. It's easy to think of your body as evil. Well, if the body is evil, why did Jesus die for it? The Bible says glorify God in your spirit and in your bodies. Paul wrote to the church saying glorify God in your spirit and in your body, which are both God's. Why would Jesus pay a price for your body? Because your body is the means of exercise, the means of the exercise of your authority here on the earth. You know who hates your body? The devil hates your body. Because it signifies that you're made in the image of God and given authority that he can never have. And that's why he works so hard against the, the works so hard to influence you to sin in your flesh. He's trying to take control of your body. He's trying to influence your body because he has no power otherwise. He has no ability to operate here in the earth. He has no means of exercise of any authority whatsoever because he's never been born of a woman and never will be. I'm running out of time. I'd really like to wrap this up. Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a few minutes extra. Is that all right? All right, look back with me to John chapter 10. I really didn't take the time to do justice to this. John chapter 10. The story continues a little bit later, but John is tying these things together to show us a truth. Let's pick up the story in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you. Well, I've got to back up to verse 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered and said, I told you and you didn't believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. In other words, he's saying, you've got all the proof you're ever going to need by just looking at the things that you know that I've done. But you believe not because you're not of my sheep as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. So you can see this is connected to the previous story. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Verse 30, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we stone thee not. But for blasphemy and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. The Amplified says of this, you make yourself out to be God. Now let me ask you a question. When the Bible says I and my father are one. When Jesus says I and my father are one. What's he saying? Is he saying I'm the son of God or is he saying I'm made in the image of God? It's a legitimate question. Because the Bible says in Genesis 1.26 that God made man in his image. 
an exact duplication of kind of his kind or in kind. So when Jesus says, I and my father are one, what's he saying? Is he saying, I'm sinless? Is he saying, I've never sinned? Or is he saying, I'm in the image of God? Well, in Jesus' case, he could be saying all of it. But let's see what he refers to when they question him. So then they want to stone him because you make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. Now, hold your finger here and turn back with me to Psalm 82. Jesus is quoting Psalm 82. And his defense for saying, I and my father are one is Psalm 82. Now, if Psalm 82 is about the Christ, then when Jesus said, I and my father are one, he's saying, I'm the son of God. But if Psalm 82 is not about the Christ, but about man being made in God's image, then some of us are going to have to change our thinking. Psalm 82, verse 1. A psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation. The word God is the word Elohim. Standeth in the congregation of the mighty. The word mighty is the word El. He judges among the gods. Now let me tell you what the word El means from the Strong's Concordance. It means strength. As an adjective, it means mighty. Especially the almighty. Used of deity. So it's saying God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He's got to be talking about the mighty ones. And judges among the gods. Now when it says God, Elohim, judges among the gods, Elohim. Who is Elohim? Well, the, the traditional interpretation of this is the Elohim is the, God, the Godhead, the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So this must be saying, as is commonly interpreted, This must be saying that God is taking a position among the Trinity. Well, if that's true, then we've got a problem with the next verse. Because it says, God who stands in the congregation of Elohim, who stands in the congregation of Elohim, says, how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Now, who is God making the accusation against? Jesus or the Holy Ghost? You do understand that's a facetious statement, I hope. In other words, God standing among the congregation of the Elohim, Elohim cannot mean the Godhead. It cannot mean the Trinity. Because if any part of the Trinity is committing sin or judging unjustly, which would be sin, accepting the persons of the wicked, then that means God has fallen from righteousness. So it can't be talking about the Trinity. Well, then who's it talking about? It's talking about those that are made in his image. God, who judges among the, who stands in the congregation of the mighty and judges among the, the Elohim, those made in his image. I want you to understand something, folks. As far as God's concerned, I understand this is hard for us to accept. But as far as God is concerned, he makes no distinction between himself and those that are in his image and his likeness. He didn't say, I'm big God, you're little God. He didn't say, I'm big God and you're just lucky. 
It says Elohim stands among the Elohim. Because as far as God's concerned, we're an exact duplication in kind. So he asked the question, how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Here's the instruction to the Elohim. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. Notice this phrase. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. What's he talking about? He's talking about after the fall. He's talking about the conditions of the world that we live in, that the Elohim are given authority to operate in and to have dominion over. The foundations of the world are out of course. This world is not the way God made it anymore. What changed it? The fall of man in the Garden of Eden. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, here's what God says among the Elohim. I have said, you are God's Elohim. And all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for they shall inherit all nations. Look back to what Jesus said in John chapter 10. Then let's pick up in verse 33 again. Then the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we should only not... But for blasphemy and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. Jesus answered them. Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. He's just quoted Psalm 82. I said God said you mankind are gods. Now what does gods mean? It means those that have given authority to rule in the earth. Jesus goes further and says, verse 36, Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I have said... Oh, I skipped a verse. I'm sorry. Back up to verse 35. He quotes Psalm 82. I said, God said, you are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, talking about man, if he called man Elohim unto whom the word of God came... And the scripture cannot be broken. Say ye of him whom the father has sanctified. And sent into the world. Thou blasphemest because I said I am the son of God. Do you see the point he's making? I don't think he could be any clearer. But I just want to make sure I haven't muddied the waters. Jesus is saying if the if the, the if mankind who is being accused of defending, uh, of judging unjustly and not defending the poor and the needy and doing righteous works. If God calls them gods unto whom the word came, how can you say I'm blaspheming because the Father has sanctified me and I claim to be the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore sought they again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. There goes that Jesus disappearing. Why? Because he's a man anointed of God. He's a man born of woman. So he has authority here on the earth. Folks, I want you to understand something. 
Your body is a precious, precious, precious thing. It's not the tool of the devil. And according to what Jesus is saying, you have just as much right to say, I and the Father are one as Jesus had. Now, you may have trouble with your head when you say it. Because with your experience with yourself, you may realize that you're not living up to that. But it's still true. If you never live up to it, it's still true. You're made in the image and likeness of God. You're an exact duplication of his kind. And where does the devil fall on that ladder? Way down below your feet. I believe that's the reason why the devil attacks us in the flesh in the way that he does. He's trying to rob us of the means of executing our authority. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to understand who we are because of the work of Jesus. We thank you, Father, that we are made in your image after your likeness, an exact duplication in your kind, of your kind. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that we have to execute authority here on the earth. The lawful permission you gave us to execute power. We thank you because of the life of God within us. The presence of the greater one. You've given us the ability to bring justice, judgment and justice. Execute judgment for us. And execute judgment against the devil. Father, we thank you that you have condemned, condemned sin in the flesh. Therefore, our bodies are a holy thing, the temple of God. Let us live in such a way, Father, that we do honor to the sacrifice that Jesus made. Father, we commit to you that we'll be like Jesus and we'll live by your word. That we'll not speak anything contrary to the holy word of God. Satan, we serve you notice that you have no authority in our lives. We understand that you have the ability to bring circumstances against us, but will not be moved by circumstance. Will not be moved by that which is subject to change, but will only be moved and influenced by the eternal word of God, the unchanging word of God. Thank you, Father, that you've given us authority over all the power of the devil. And nothing shall by any means hurt us. In Jesus' name. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.